He was brought across in 1228, preyed on humans for their blood. Now he wants to be mortal again, to repay society for his sins, to emerge from his world of darkness, from his ever <laughs> endless forever nights. I'm Eddie Webb. And I'm Chris Vivey. And today we're going to talk about Forever Night here on Genreless. Hello and welcome to another episode of Genreless, where my main goal in life is to try to see if I can get Chris to break up when I do the quote for each episode. <laughs> how how can you not laugh with his endless forever night <laughs> like that is oh prime cheese and, and and like uh, uh not to dive right into it but like the the opening monologue like i i i knew there was some kind of opening monologue but i completely forgot about it and i'm watching it and like to emerge from his world of darkness I'm like wait a minute wait <laughs> a minute <laughs> All right. In, in case people don't know, Eddie, why would World of Darkness really be a thing that you would cling on to or mention? So, well, it's, it's so it's funny. It's like um, World of Darkness is, is the, the umbrella name for the horror games that were put out by White Wolf in the early 90s all the way up to the modern day. Um, I worked on Vampire the Masquerade, one of those games, for, for a number of years. I was the, the, the line developer for it, and I've also worked on a lot of World of Darkness games since then. But it's amusing to me because this aired like maybe a year, maybe less than Vampire of the Masquerade, the very first book, went out. So there's no way. There's no way it's a major <laughs> reference. It's just the zeitgeist of the early 20s like that's, or 90s. That's what people were into worlds that happened to be some level of not bright. So that's just kind of <laughs> a catchphrase that lurked around. But it's funny because like uh, later on I'm going – completely off topic for the moment um there was a, a series of fighting games there was a dark stalker series it was kind of a i guess a spinoff or kind of related sort of to the street fighter series um and they put a second uh, dark stalkers game and it had the name world of darkness as a subtitle white wolf at this point in time actually had enough together to get lawyers and i just said hey that's our thing um and so they changed the the logo on the machine to be the world darkness logo whilst using the world darkness thing and as i am told by people who worked at white wolf their, their payment was an actual arcade version of that game which was in the garage or the <laughs> warehouse where i worked so i actually could play it well would it have been better if it was like um his ongoing gloomy evenings see that just sort of loses something <laughs> to emerge from his kind of dark space <laughs> oh. uh, but yeah so, so why did we night. choose forever night um honestly uh, i picked it i picked it for a couple of reasons the main real reason i picked it uh was because i remembered being obsessed with this show in the early 90s. It was like I tuned in every week for this show. Um, I was, you know, also I was playing Vampire the Masquerade. I was a huge vampire fan. It's like, hey, here's a show about vampires. I like vampire stuff. I want to watch this. Um, and I was like, I have no idea if this is going to hold up. And I was just, this was an excuse to kind of watch it and see if it actually held up. Um, but there is a larger structural reason. Um, part of it leads into 
what we're going to talk about next week, which I won't mention here. We'll save that for the end. Um, but also because we've mentioned before that there's this thread of Monster of the Week storylines that, that kind of go through uh, the stuff we, we've um, been talking about earlier. There's another thread we haven't touched on, which is the kind of dark soap opera vibe of it as well, right? Um, we saw a fair bit of it actually in Lovecraft Country, you know, um, the idea of inside of this world of horror, there's also soap opera style character dynamics happening inside of it. Um, and this is kind of the other thread. It's like we went through kind of the Monster of the Week thread. Now we're going back and going through the soap opera thread, which is heavily, not exclusively, but heavily involves vampires. We should so. have really then started with Dark Shadows if we really wanted I to do with that one. I debated Dark Shadows, but Dark Shadows is weird because Dark Shadows starts off as a normal straight up nut soap opera and then they introduce vampires and then they just kind of kept going with that thread well Forever. it depends are you talking about the original dark shadows or the remake from the i want to say early 2000s i have not seen the remake i want to say it's only about eight or ten episodes and it focuses heavily on barnabas collins barnabas collins yes oh god and i'm not um, even talking about the movie remake with all that I haven't no, even seen that no. one. Uh, no, it, the Dark Shadows is kind of funny because, like, um, everyone was like, oh, my God, there was a soap opera that had vampires in it. But, like, if you actually dig into most soap operas, at some point in time, supernatural thing happens, just comes up. But usually it's kind of a, this is the Halloween episode, or they'll do, like, a short thread of it and then move on. And Dark Dark Shadows was like, they saw a ratings bump when vampires came on. It's like, cool, we'll just, Barnabas Collins it is now. We're just We're just living in this world. We should do just a soap operas run now because we can make it. You make it supernatural soap opera run. We could fall, take that period where Marlena is possessed by the devil from Days of Our Lives, yes. passions in dark shadows. <laughs> and I even think, if memory serves, I never saw it. There was like a Baywatch Nights supernatural yes, paranormal was. show. Yes, there were Baywatch Nights. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Look at that! Yeah. A whole season we we're making right now on. Recorded air for our listeners. I mean, also, I mean, you can even make an argument for Riverdale because um, Riverdale is kind of supernatural, but replace superheroes with supernatural or uh, yeah, replace super, su superheroes with supernatural stuff because basically it's a high school soap opera. I would say nay, nay, because Riverdale is has more of a modern storytelling vibe to it with those sort of special effects. The shows we've mentioned before. Uh, Dark Shadows from the 2000s at best, the 90s days of our lives, and Passions really, really don't feel like uh, Riverdale with its high production values. It's very well, pretty people. And, and that's and that's fair. Um, actually, it is worth kind of, of uh, unpacking a little bit. This is, I use soap opera in terms of the character dynamics, but Forever Night is not actually soap opera. And the main reason is because Soap operas actually generally have uh, a serious structure. They have three, each episode will have usually three ongoing storylines. And in the course of a week of soap opera, one of those storylines will start and one of those storylines will end. Um, and they won't always be in the same episode. Uh, so it, it, it's very much designed that you're always being drug along to the next storyline. You, you never get a clean drop off in a soap opera. There's always something dragging you to the next bit of the soap opera. Well, that's because um, the nature of the soap opera is it's a daily show compared to a weekly show. 
So they, they have to give you lots of hooks to keep you coming back. Right. Um, uh, uh, in this case, um, so I'm using, I'm using soap opera as kind of a, a, a colloquialism, but really what I'm talking about here is melodrama. Um, and this uh, Forever Nights is, is very much uh, an updating of, of that melodramatic, uh, uh, almost Victorian melodrama tradition. Um, so that's my kind of super high level. I sound really smart for saying it reason forever night, but, but to be blunt, it's the, I have not watched, uh, syndicated Canadian nineties television in a good minute. Uh, There's an excuse to do so. I can't talk. I'm the one that put the, uh, 90 Smallville on, on the roster. So I, I, I have no room to quibble about nineties TV shows. Right. Um, what was your past experience with forever night? Uh, I watched it when it came out weekly, just like you. Because I I may have mentioned in passing that I had a friend who's not me who was a goth that played a lot of vampire, uh, ran like a six year World of Darkness game and had a sub vampire game and then like a vampire Dark Ages game that they ran for fifteen people. Mm-hmm. So I was obsessed. Uh, my friend was obsessed, you know, with <laughs> vampires and all that kind of stuff. And so they watched nice. all those shows and they came out. Definitely right. not me that. No, totally not you. You, you. you would, you would, you are above and/or beneath such things. I was, I was your average run-of-the-mill jock with like my baseball cap. I, I think there's a, a jersey that they wear. They have running <laughs> shoes, right? Yes, I, I, I follow the local <laughs> sports team. Yes. <laughs> so they, yeah, yeah, all the time. Woo. Um. So, uh, uh, uh I, I will admit something. We. This is this show is breaking the rules a little bit of our we, our self imposed rules for the podcast because we've generally tried to do things that are streaming to make sure that all of our listeners also have a, a very reasonably easy chance to watch it. Um, since I have moved overseas, that has become increasingly a challenge, um, but I've been more or less okay with it because even if I have to buy episodes every now and then, I'm happy to do it just to kind of watch along. Um, Forever Night might be on Tubi in the US, but it was on Peacock when I first pitched it, and then it's not anymore. So at the time of recording, the only place we were able to find it actually is archive.org. So we're kind Are of you saying for the UK, right? No, no, in general. I don't think it's I don't think it's even available in the US. I think maybe it's in the US and Tubi. It's definitely not in for, the UK anywhere. For those of you who who like me have become lurkers on YouTube during COVID and have uh mastered the the YouTubes, it is in fact on YouTube. Okay. I think all of it and the best quality episodes you can find are there. Yeah. Um, and, and this is a show that, that sadly, for some reason, um, has never really gotten a kind of, of uh, a remaster or a significant update. As far as I can tell, basically, some companies just took the broadcast version, slapped them on DVD, sold them for about a year, and then that was pretty much it. Um, so the, the shows you would find on YouTube or an archive.org or whatever are going to be pretty much what you, what you would have saw on broadcast minus the commercials. Do you want to talk about some of the production behind forever night? Forever. I don't know. Night. I don't know anything about the production behind it. What? I mean, I know, it's, oh. I know it was made in Canada. Um, uh, so something in the water about Canada, but I'll get to that in a later episode. Actual. Talk. All right. The, the snippets that I, I remember and know is that. It was part of a like after hours crime drama block of TV they had because it's even one of the YouTube videos. I If you watch on YouTube, there may be one part where it's edited improperly and you can see that it's part of like a crime block for after hours TV shows. Oh, right. Okay. 
and it was part of that. But Forever Night had trouble every single season. For instance, after the end of there was a movie Forever Night that starred yes. Rick Springfield. We, we, we skipped over that. <laughs> and but the pilot that we watched is basically the movie redone. And supposedly the pilot, this pilot is better than what the movie was. And, but it got canceled after first season. Mm -hmm. And a year later it got picked back up and they made it. And then it got canceled again, but then it got saved by USA. That network to have its third and final season. I do know that at least season one also, um, there were actually different versions of the episodes. Uh, because they were originally made for Canadian television, but uh, the eye towards both the U.S. and the European export market. Um, and so uh, basically the Canadian episodes are kind of the middle ground of them. The U.S. ones cut out some small violence and uh, uh, implications of nudity, whereas the European ones actually had slightly more nudity injected in specifically to kind of appeal to that market. Uh, so, And then I understand, I, I think around season two, they kind of more standardized that, but they're actually various different versions of at least early season one, if not all of season one, where episodes have different stuff in them, which is fascinating to me. And it never had a big budget, but the budget got reduced, I think, each year. And by season three, it had a very small budget when USA saved it. And so one of the things they did to help with that is they recycled scenes. And I'm specifically mentioning this because at the end of the sixth episode, when we get there, you'll mm -hmm. see Nicholas like throwing a ball at his apartment and play chess by himself. That is an insert scene to fill the amount of time they needed to end the episode with. And they did that oh, yeah. throughout the show. Oh, I love it. Oh, yeah. No, it was super clear that the episode ended like five minutes before it actually stopped playing. I was like, what is going on? <laughs> um, uh, uh, and it's, I mean, also, uh, this is another show with flashbacks. And we'll, I, I want to talk about flashbacks when we get there. But um, one of the things that I noticed on the flashbacks this time around is that they're all in one room, right? Like we're going back in time, but we're not leaving this one exact space we're in. Um, so again, another cost cutting measure of like, we can, we have exactly two costumes and one room and that's all you get. <laughs> Use it. So even before you really get into the thing proper, I started, I think I started watching this one before Eddie did because my schedule opened up and I tried to jump on it and I just tweet, I put it in our channel that uh, this show is incredibly watchable. I didn't say yeah. it was good. I didn't say it was bad, <laughs> but it is solid, like 80s through early 2000s watchable TV. Like mm -hmm. that in of itself is a monumental feat. We've talked about this, this interesting thread in the season of like well-made television. And initially I was like, well, maybe it's because we've been coming off of the MCU. But the thing is, it just keeps happening. And so I'm, I'm more inclined to think that something about all these shows we picked up has some kind of common DNA, but you're absolutely right. Like throwing a ball against the wall aside, um, these are generally really well-paced episodes that um, uh, you don't have time to get bored, but also um, the show really knows what it's doing, right? Like, like, let's be honest. This is a silly show on, on some pretty fundamental levels. What are you telling me? Show a cop drama starring a vampire that wants to become human again is a silly show. It's ridiculous. And the show and he works credit, at night. It works at night. Um, 
And the show recognizes that ensemble. It's not making fun of itself, but it's walking right up to the line. And I'll, I'll point out instances. Don't worry, I have some uh, prepared. But um, it, it, it's when you're when I watched it originally, I genuinely thought, oh, my God, this is like really gripping drama. And I'm watching again like this is nuts. But it still works. It works for very different reasons for me now. But it still works. It's it's. I mean, the 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 leads are all just devouring the scenery. Um, you know, the uh, uh, there's there's no scenery left after Lacroix walks up on this on the screen because he's eaten it all. Um, uh, uh, all of the vampires are just the vampiriest it can possibly be, uh, and it's. I, I really feel like in a lot of ways. Um, uh, uh, there's not a ton of vampire media before this. I think that is quite as iconic as this. I mean, like, I mean, there's definitely a, 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 a link from Lost Boys to this in terms of the portrayal of vampires. Um, and but I mean, I feel like from here, a lot of what we think of as vampires on TV kind of gets stamped. If it's not created here, it's certainly kind of solidified here. Because again, this ran for three seasons, and it was re- it was replayed a lot across at least the u.s so if you were vaguely into vampires you probably seen an episode of forever night do you know if the Anne rice interview the vampire movie came out after this i believe it did that was one of the ones i didn't look up i booked a few other i'm i am right now willing to bet money and if i am wrong brad pitt can come tell me i'm wrong but i'm saying brad pitt watched this show and studied Nick before he became Louis, so he could portray that that angst that a vampire has of trying to be human. Well, we'll neither confirm or deny your assertion. I will simply state that Interview with the Vampire came out in 1994, which is two years after this. Boom! <laughs> so, <laughs> there strong you go. incentive. Brad Pitt, Gauntlet Thrown Down. Um, but Come on the here, podcast, um, premiere uh, uh, The thing I was going to mention that I'll just bring it up now is... Uh, uh, the other Canadian produced genre show that heavily features an immortal person with flashbacks was the Highlander TV show. And it came out basically the same week as this show. So the Highlander and forever night were like, if you wanted to watch young, hot men talking about how angsty your life is for living for so long, you had lots of options in the early nineties for whatever reason. Can can or would you be surprised to know that I watch both of these shows week to week? I also watched a lot of Highlander too. It has not aged well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it it wasn't aging well when I first watched it. I can't imagine well, it would aging fair. well now. That's fair. I remember kind of liking Highlander, but really liking Forever Night. And, and again, I think I think at the time I was like, it's so much darker and grittier. And it's like, no, it's the exact opposite. Highlander really thought I was being serious, and Forever Night. Did not think it was being serious at all. Are we about to do a 90s TV run? <laughs> I would. I mean, I have all sorts of thoughts for that. Because did you ever see, we're like all off tangent now. Did you ever see La Femme Nikita? Yes. The TV series? Yeah. And that one, I'm not, I would be curious to see if it, if it aged well or not. Because I feel like it's probably really horribly offensive now. I would think so, but I'm I'm so curious, but I, I will not go yeah. back and rewatch it unless there's a reason for me to go back. And right, rewatch it. right. Um, yeah, like La Femme Nikita. Oh, God. There's like this whole 90s glut of syndicated action shows that were made super cheap. Um, uh, 
what was the superhero one on Fox? Mantis. Mantis. Oh my god. What about Nightman if you want to go for superheroes from the 90s? Oh yeah, Nightman. Um uh or... there was one I for, I forget the name, but it was about a guy who his whole shtick was he's extremely lucky and that was like the whole show and they made like a season out of this concept. I remember cuz How... his name was Chance. No, that's not Christopher Chance. He was in Human Target and that was uh no. in the 2000s. I don't remember actually. I looked it up. Um or we could go for Bruce Campbell where he is the, the like American and he has his British counterpart. And it's like the 1770s. Do you oh not know the show God. that I'm talking about? Yes. It, it, Cause it was the and one it, that came after his, um, Briscoe uh, County Jr. Western. Yeah. Right. It was, it was supposed to be his next thing. And it just didn't go anywhere. He was like, a, Oh cause oh God. Yeah. It wasn't good, but I watched it no. because I like Bruce Campbell. I, yes. I feel I feel a duology coming on a Bruce Campbell now, just because I want to talk about Briscoe County Jr. and we can tackle that Jr. on there. I, I, we're way Phenomenal off topic. We'll Um But I, I did rewatch Briscoe County Jr. like five or six years ago, and it has really held up. Uh, I was super shocked at how well it held up. Actually, that was one of the shows I rewatched when I was uh, working on Haunted West because it has some supernatural and alien bits to it, and it's very strong western. And it had uh, a black cowboy in it too. Mm-hmm. So yeah ahead of its time and bruce campbell is just an incredibly likable asshole yes yes uh speaking of likable assholes um Le Night. Nicholas. <laughs> Nicholas. do you know um, the actor uh Nigel bennett i think l- wrong last name but he liked loved the character so much that he wrote i want to say a couple or a series of books Based on the character. He didn't have the rights to it, but so it's like loosely oh based on LaCroix. That's that's fantastic. Um, that kind of reminds me of um, the guy who played Garrick in Deep Space Nine actually wrote his biography uh, um, and actually got it published. Uh, he had a writer work with him to write uh, Garrick's biography. Oh, that's awesome. It's, it's fantastic. And they just recently, uh, they got the rights to have him read the audiobook version. So now you have Garrick actually reading his biography. It's <laughs> Oh, so good. Tell I me, love when actors get really into their characters. Tell me that in it, it, it is finally confirmed that he and Julian are a couple. They continue to heavily imply that, yes. Oh, just because like the whole, go ahead and state it. The whole conceit is, um, he. this is spoilers for the end of Space Nine. Um, this is when he's back on Cardassia trying to rebuild. Um, and so it's him right to Julian to finally explain all the bullshit put Julian through. Um, so it's... There's a couple of digs at Esri that make you think that there's a jilted lover dynamic going on there. (laughs) Poor Esri. Uh, But anyway. Did not um, deserve all the hate they got. All right. But uh, we're not here to talk about Deep Space Nine. Although I would happily do an episode by episode Deep Space Nine starting in season three. Don't, 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 don't tempt me with the good time. Um, but to kind of ease our way in, uh, since we mentioned Esri, uh, uh, real quick, um, in episode one, uh, the, the woman playing the homeless, actually episode one and two, the, the girl playing the homeless girl is actually, uh, Nicole DeBoer who played Esri in a very, very nice. early role of hers. Uh, so, so give me for our to listeners, say about Forever Night before we go in. <clears throat> for our listeners before Eddie really gets into it. Um, so can, do you, I added the last name to give you a clue, but do you know the actor who played the name of the character I'm playing? Andre Knight? No. It's it's in this show. I added Knight so you know that whoever it is is related to Nick, if that helps you helps you like hone in. Drawing blank. No? All right. No. I, I specifically chose this one 
because at time of recording, the Ahsoka TV show is on, and it is rumored mm-hmm. that Hayden Christian is going to show up in the show, and he was in Forever Night, like season three, as like Nick's oh nephew God. in a flashback. <laughs> oh, wow, that's a deep cut. Oh, man. God, this show. Um, Eddie's I, I wanna, Joy is wanna... making me try to snort coffee. Mine is the deep cuts <laughs> into the face he gets right. when I explain some of them. And it's like it's, it's all connected. It's like it's, it's a weird conspiracy theory of genre television. Um, all right. Uh, so let's start with um, episode one, Dark Knight, which is not the Batman movie. Uh, Paris. 1228. Over the course of several flashbacks, we learn that LaCroix has just brought Nick across at Jeanette's urging. Together, they teach him how to feed another so-called ways of the night. In the modern day, Nick Knight, now a police officer, investigates the theft of a jade cup as part of the so-called vampire murders. Captain Stonetree assigns Shanky as Nick's partner, even though Nick likes to work alone. On returning home, Nick advises his young homeless friends to stay in his garage at night, but they don't listen. Nick goes up to his loft and drinks blood from what looks like the missing cup. Shanky and Nick drive around when Nick hears a girl screaming and they stop to find a man holding a girl at gunpoint. Nick has Shanky talk and distract the shooter while he flies up to the window. As the Shanky rushes inside, Nick pulls the shooter through the window and drops him into a dumpster. Meanwhile, Dr. Hunter is reviewing her papers on the Mayan cup and its discovery and she comes across a black and white photo of Nick on the original dig site. Nick visits her and nearly kills her while kissing her. Back in headquarters, Captain Stonetree doesn't believe Shanky saw Nick pull a guy out the window. Later, Nat, the coroner and Nick's friend who is helping him become mortal, comes to the loft where Nick is drinking blood, and she tells him in no uncertain terms why he has to stop doing this. Nick tells her about kissing Elise, or Dr. Hunter, and then wanting to kill her. Another typo-positive homeless person is killed. Nick goes to the Raven, which is a nightclub, and sees Jeanette for the first time in many years. She assures him LaCroix is not the one responsible for the typo-negative blood killings. As Nick drives away, we hear the Qua on the radio playing a violin piece that he's dedicated to my friends Nicholas and ends by saying, the Nightcrawler is waiting for you. You know, Chris, sometimes when I write these plot summaries, it's like, okay, let me just kind of recap the plot so we know kind of how to orient ourselves into the narrative. But when you actually say this out loud, it, it doesn't quite communicate just how batshit this show is. <laughs> so... I would normally give you a lot of shtick about writing all that for a show. And I said that this show is incredibly watchable and that it is, but the problem is, is not memorable. Yes. I watched it and I, and then the car ride back yesterday, I was thinking to myself, what happened that first episode? Uh, and I had a couple beats, but I watched it. I enjoyed it when I watched it, but I remembered nothing. Right, and this is kind of the 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 downside of what we talk about as as, as watchable is that um this was designed to be TV shows that you put on in the background or you put it between other shows. Um, it's meant to just fill an hour of airtime, and it does that really really well. Um, but that is kind of damning with faint praise uh, in, in a lot of ways. Um, but this is also it's it's. It's one of those shows that like between like the the patter and the editing and the the overall kind of charisma of the cast that you don't realize that nothing you watch makes a lick of sense. Because like I was watching it and, and like I, I, I kind of started watching it 
Uh, and then I have a throw. I was like, wait a minute. Like you, I was like, wait a minute. I actually don't know what just happened. So let me rewind and actually pay attention this time. And I paid attention. So now I'm thinking critically as I watch it. And like, there, there's some interesting bits in here that I noticed when I was paying attention, but it's just nonsense. Like, okay, so the very beginning, not the flashback, but the police thing, um, they mentioned that there are two jade cups and the jade cups are part of this uh, museum exhibit and they've excavated them and they're, they're showing off. But one of them uh, was lost in antiquity and the other one has been stolen and that the person who uh, killed the, uh, the, the security guard was believed to have drained his blood. So they're like immediately vampire murders. And I'll get to that in a second. We then get to uh, uh, Nick kind of trying to poo-poo the whole thing. Now vampires aren't real, blah, blah, blah. And then we go to, uh, he goes to his apartment. Um, he pulls out the cup we just saw had been stolen. And then he, he drinks from it and turns to the camera and blood's just dripping down his mouth. Um, <laughs> and so like, if you have no clue what this show is about, there's a bit of the, oh, is he the killer, right? It's, it's, it's interesting way to kind of structure that to get that kind of cliffhanger commercial break thing. But nothing about the plot actually makes sense because there's two cups and you need both cups to actually perform this ritual to become mortal. Nick has one of them just sitting in his apartment. He's a police officer, knows that people are looking for the other version of this cup and just has it hanging out in his apartment. Problem one. Problem two, why are all vampires messy eaters, Chris? Why can none of them keep blood in their mouth? <laughs> I, let me let me tackle those one at a time. Uh, problem <laughs> one, why does he just hang, have it hanging out in, in his apartment? He is a 800 plus year old white vampire. So privilege all over that. So no one's going to come into my apartment. Uh, number two is it's like when you go and you have a very delicious steak. I am. I watch my nine year old eat her steak and it's just not in her mouth, but it's like on her face. It's in her hair. And it's, it's a whole thing of enjoying embracing the meal. And a vampire has learned that you have to embrace every moment of that unlife. I like those answers. So, so, so you're, you're to, to summarize your answers are Nick is both too old and too young. <laughs> it's fair. That's fair. Um, but again, one thing that's also interesting about this is that, like, like we mentioned earlier, there was a, a movie kind of stealth. I, I think it was a made-for-TV movie that they didn't really meant to hang a whole series on, and they decided to hang a series on it because uh, the movie is 89, and this is 92. So it's definitely, I don't think it was intended one or the other. Um, but also this movie picks up from the events of that, sorry, this show picks up the events of that movie while also recapping them. I didn't watch the movie. But there was certainly a bit of, hey, wait a minute, what's going on? Who's this person? Why should I care? And then th the show does, over the course of the first episode, come back and touch on each of those points. So it's actually a kind of, it was actually a compelling intro into the show because I had to kind of get caught up. Um, but like, on the other hand, it's also weirdly ham-fisted because it's the, we have the uh, flashback before the title sequence, cold open. Title sequence, we come back from it to Nick walking into a, a, a museum, a crime scene, saying, I'm a police officer, and a reporter shoving a microphone in his face saying, is this one of the vampire murders? And I'm like, okay, so immediately there's no mystery. Vampires exist, and people believe them. And I'm just like, okay, we're, we're that kind of show, apparently. You're watching a show called Forever Night, and <laughs> the lead of the show that you, the lead you see as a vampire within the first, I think, three to five minutes. You know you're watching a vampire show. That is not right. what the hook is supposed to be. If right. anything, 
Well, I would also, we have to think about the time when it was aired in television, how many supernatural shows there might have been at the time. I don't think there were a lot. No, there weren't. So you're trying to bring in a new crowd and you're trying to make whatever is accessible to people. So that's why you follow the, the cop drama format for the show. So you can try to hook your older audiences that are likely watching cop dramas. And then right, you right. have the supernatural cool bit to try to get all the younger viewers to come in and watch it. No, I mean, I'm, I'm not mad about this at all. It, it's, it's just, it's very clear that this show is hitting the ground running, but also it, it's, it's making it very clear that you're not lost. It's like, going, like, like you said, if you somehow missed the cold open, it's going to reiterate, no, seriously, this is a show by vampires. And then it, like, there's some kind of reference to vampires or image of vampires like every five minutes in this episode. You do not lose that point at any time during all of this. Um, Which it does, I think is to the... Sorry, go ahead. No, you, I was going to... Oh, I was going to say the only downside to this is um, uh, occasionally... Okay, let me just put it out there. The police in the show are stupid. They're just all dumb. And it's really reinforced when Captain Stone Tree, in a show that's repeatedly told us vampires might exist, Captain Stone Tree, talking to his Nick saying, you asked to be on the night shift and I didn't complain about it. You said you're allergic to the sun and you didn't complain about it. You say you like to work alone I didn't complain about it. But now I'm putting a partner with you. Also, by the way, I don't believe vampires exist. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> we... Have, I think we've already established by that point in time that Nick had powers and he was potentially using his powers on Stone Tree. We did. We did. We did. And we had a journalist saying there were vampires. And, you know, right. journalists and writers, you can't trust that lot at all. They're a bunch of <laughs> hoo-hahs. So, but I, I, you brought up Stone Tree, so I have to mention it. I just want Stone Tree to get a cup of coffee. I... I <laughs> I like the actor, but he's a little too tired throughout all of his scenes. I want it could be, I'm assuming joke aside, is an actual acting choice to counterbalance right. the force that is Kanky and and LaCroix running around throughout the show. Right, right. Um but I mean it's and, and actually um we're kind of slow going through, but like I'm 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 making I'm bringing stuff up to kind of make fun of it, but it's it's definitely from a place of love because uh, all of these choices are very clearly deliberate. Um, like Skanky, for example, Skanky is clearly comedy relief. That is his role in the show. Um, he he's not a good detective. Uh, he's he's there to kind of. Well, I will push back on that. Okay, we'll talk about this in episode six because he is really a bad detective in episode six. I'm not talking about episode six. I'm talking about episode one and what we have okay. is our knowledge point right now. And we've had someone actually comment on him solving some of their cases before this that were impressive. Well, sure. That's what the show tells us. But in terms of what we actually see Skanky do. Uh, I'm talk- We're not at that point yet. We're at this point <laughs> in the show. We're like 10 minutes in. And Skanky has been told that he's, I've been told he's a good detective. I have no proof stating otherwise. Well, specifically, if I remember what Sontree says is he's my best detective, which is not the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) They could all be terrible. And we will later get proof that they all are, even Nick. So, (laughs) right. But at this moment in time, (laughs) right. But no, I mean, it's what's great is what's happened. Um, this show 
the, the only thing that kind of came to mind after I started thinking about it is this kind of structured like reverse Doctor Who in the sense that every character around Nick is heightened on some level, right? Like Stone Tree is perpetually tired. Skank is perpetually silly and or everyman. Nat is perpetually science girl. Um, all of them have a very strong character trait and a strong performance. And the actor plays Nick plays a relatively subtle performance in the middle of all of that. And so he gets kind of, uh, uh, he ends up kind of mirroring the energy of whatever scene he's in. So Nick comes across as very complicated and deep and intricate when really he's just kind of using the other cast members to kind of draw those things out. And it's actually really, really well done. And this is like all credit to the actor. I think it's a really well done performance. It, it, it makes Nick never fall too hard into brooding, never too hard into silly. He's always kind of, uh, as you adjust, he balances out. Now, editing has done him no favors, as we'll talk about in other episodes. But <laughs> in this first episode, you really get a sense of like, when Nick, when we go to the flashbacks of Nick, where it's like, super angsty, oh my God, I've killed someone. And then we're bouncing back to um, uh, uh, him pulling a guy through a window in super action, I'm a fierce vampire mode. You never feel like, these are all different characters, even though when you actually, again, sit and think about it, Nick is all over the place emotionally in this episode. Well, it's also we're covering 800 years of existence. Right. No, totally. So that's I, th I think it's good. I think well, I agree. Like, like the whiplashing effect of that is I'm going to give them a lot of credit because I think the show is well constructed, intentional yeah. to show mm -hmm. you the different facets of the character. Honestly, I think this is where shows like uh uh, well, Revenge and Highlander, but Arrow specifically fail because um, Ollie is so different between the flashback and the modern day that it doesn't seem like the same character. Um, and then when both of those start to have progressions, it feels it, it becomes increasingly clear that just, these are just two different characters. Whereas with Nick, because it's constantly bouncing around in his timeline, A, um, we're always seeing different aspects of him, and always there's a direct connection to the episode. Like, like this episode is Nick becoming a vampire. We as the audience are learning what that means for Nick. Um, we don't see his regret until episode two, but this episode uh, is just kind of, who are these people? Why, why are they uh, uh, telling him about coming across? What's going on? And then the episode then brings Jeanette back, brings the claw back. And it's like, oh, those are the people I saw earlier. So, but his performance of, being young and regretful in 1228 and then seeing him confident and in charge in there, it presents an interesting contrast. And so his, like I said, all of them, him, Nick being pulled in different directions, he ends up contrasting himself. And when it's done well, it's actually really compelling because it's like, this is one character that's, but he's, there's a lot of perceived depth. He's not actually a deep character, but it feels like he's deep because he has a strong supporting cast of people that are really kind of playing off of him. He's playing off of them. Then I'm, I'm forming a question. It's not completely formed yet, but I'll still do it anyway. Based on your knowledge of vampire from researching and from writing it, how do you feel about the portrayal of the vampire's existence in this show? It's, uh, it's interesting, right? Because, the idea of okay so let me step back um a lot of modern vampire fiction in my belief has ultimately stemmed from various interpretations of vampire the masquerade right 
Um, I, I think it is difficult to overstate the impact that Masquerade had on vampire fiction from 1991 on. Uh, this falls into a weird edge case because it's playing off of a movie that was written before Vampire, and it comes out before Vampire really kind of got a certain kind of density and popularity. Uh, so the idea of an organized conspiracy keeping vampires secret is very common in vampire fiction now and non-existent prior to this, right? Look at the Lost Boys. They're just, they just fuck around and find out all of the time. <laughs> there is no desire to keep their shit secret. Interview the Vampire even kind of flirts with it, but like literally the conceit of the movie and the show is I'm going to give you an interview telling you you're a vampire so you can then publish it. So it's not exactly coming from a place of I'm keeping the secret. Well, the counterpoint, though, I guess, for that would be what about Dracula? He didn't really run around doing vampire vampire stuff. He no, tried also, to live within society and do stuff behind the scenes. Okay, Chris. Yes. Uh, well, I could argue that. Do you remember how he got to England? He murdered an entire people on boats, strapped one of them to a wheel while that ship came into harbor with nobody on it. And then and, had himself air, air delivered from that boat to his place where he's going to stay. And think about the time period. The detectives would not have been able to do who he was. He killed all those motherfuckers, so there's no eyewitnesses. <laughs> that is called not breaching, for, for a vampire talk, the masquerade. You covered up all your shit. <laughs> but, but, that, but that's actually a good way into this because, like, there's not that kind of X-Files style conspiracy going on here. Instead, it's the individual initiative to cover it up. Um, but also to go back to, to vampire and to a degree lost boys, a certain flair about it, right? It's the, I could cover it up or I can just make everyone disappear in a very mysterious way, but they're not thinking vampire. They're thinking, wow, that's weird. Or that's gory. Um, so, and that's, what we have here of like, there's literally a vampire whose job is being a DJ. It's not an attempt to kind of say we're hiding from society, but rather saying, we're just going to distract you from the nonsense that we're going to actually do. And that's where this show sits. And that's why I kind of like it because it has the, the it has that extremely strong nineties vampire feel, but it's actually coming from a slightly different tradition than post masquerade vampire portrayals. Okay. Thank I mean, you. if you think about it, look at Buffy, although we've been dancing around lots of reasons why we don't talk about it. But if you remember, even in Buffy, the vampires generally were more conspiratorial, but also they conveniently turned to ash when they died. So there was all sorts of reasons why they didn't leave evidence. Nick Knight or Forever Night vampires leave all sorts of evidence all the time. I would, I would say for for Buffy, the reason they turned to ash less conspiratorial. I just don't think they wanted to put on screen uh, the the young blonde heroine like stuffing a body into a trash can, like. I mean, that would detract yeah. from the, the heroic nature of the show if they every week this week on Buffy disposing of bodies. Well, I mean, you say that, but a, I think it's more had to do with the television standards at the time, because B, the original movie, they straight up murder vampires. And there's actually an extremely long death scene of a vampire in that. Granted, it's played by a guy, please, Pee Wee Herman. Um, so it's ludicrous, but there's lots of blood in that, but it's, it's meant to be silly. Um, but you're right. I mean, I, I, I feel like some of it is just kind of aggregate. I'm not saying it all necessarily stems from masquerade, but that's a good kind of liminal point to kind of track from there. 
Um, but this is in a slightly different tradition. This is much more like Dracula in the sense of Nick just keeps his mouth shut, except for all the times he tells people he's a vampire. But aside from that, you know, I mean, he's not Barry Allen or anything, but he's pretty close. Nick has to be convinced generally to tell people he's a vampire. Right, right. Whereas Barry except- Allen went to <laughs> top of a hat. <laughs> this mask is uncomfortable. <laughs> Oh, hello, everyone. In, everyone, hello, everyone in Star City. I am the Flying Barry Allen. Right now, I'll just run back in time and make you all forget. Hi, person I just met from Parallel Dimension who happens to look kind of like <laughs> Superman. Here's my secret identity. <laughs> but we're here to talk about Nick Knight, who right, right. while so, he can't run, he can fly. <laughs> yeah. Well, so this is another interesting point, right? No, I'm, I'm no selling that because it leads to a funnier point. Um. I was working on the World Darkness MMO, and uh, uh, we had a bunch of artists who weren't necessarily versed in the Vampire the Masquerade lore. And uh, they ended up doing an animatronic, and one of the things was that they showed a vampire flying through the air in just human form. And, of course, everyone on the team was like, oh, no, no, you can't do the Vampire the Masquerade. You know, you turn into a bat and fly, but you can't actually fly around. And I remember very clearly the artist going, I don't understand why not. You watch shows like this, you watch things with the Lost Boys, it's really common that vampires just fly around in the air mm-hmm. without turning into bats. You don't see it very often in 21st century vampire fiction. Because it makes them too much definitely in the mold of superheroes at that point in time. That right. thinking. Mm-hmm. So you've got super strength, you're super tough, you can kind of mind control people, and you can fly. Oh, you forgot, you forgot, Chris, your favorite, your favorite superpower of all time, super hearing that we see in this episode. <laughs> he can hear a woman scream across town and know where That's she's at. Ridiculous. <laughs> He's not the Sumerian or um, yeah, Astro City joke for all you comic book fans out there. Um, um but but yes, yeah, so, so Shanky, you're you're the person you're convinced is a good detective literally sees Nick pull someone through a window at an upper story building and his captain says, That didn't happen. He goes, Okay. I <laughs> I give you, he's someone working for a paycheck that has a supportive family <laughs> and sees no reason to disagree with his captain. Right, right. And I well, think and there's also you... an episode later that we didn't watch where Skanky kind of confronts LaCroix about Nick being a vampire. Right. And, well, and that's, that's, LaCroix doesn't I mean, say no, but he doesn't say yes. So that's, that's one thing that's actually interesting about this show. I mean, I'm, I, I'm giving Skanky a, a fair bit of uh, a stick here, but to your point, um, anybody who spends time around Nick eventually figures it out. Some characters figure it out faster. Um, and it's the show. It's interesting. The show starts off with someone who already knows the secret, right? It's, it's the, there's no build up to it. It's just Nat immediately knows again. The idea is ostensibly extending from the movie that we didn't watch, but still coming into it cold like this is actually interesting. Is the oh no, I know you're a vampire, and she's trying to get him to turn mortal through scientific means, which becomes kind of a running joke slash trope through the whole show. And it's actually kind of interesting because the 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 thread isn't will people find out next vampire? It's who will find out he's a vampire? And uh, let's go back to Skanky. He's 
there's a, there's kind of a thin line. I, I continue to assert that he's not good at his job, but that doesn't mean he's necessarily not paying attention. And there are moments where it's actually written and acted well to where a lot of things he misses, there's a justifiable reason for. So like in this case, I did it jokingly, but the way it's cut, he comes in just as the body's pulled out. And so we as the viewer know what's happened because we saw the lead up to that moment. But the actual moment that's shot, all you see is a guy falling out the window and something moving behind him. And so the way Skanky presents it is Nick ran away, guys being pulled out of a building. I think Nick did that. So this captain's not wrong to go, that's not enough evidence. But that's not actually what's played. What Stone Tree's going, uh, vampires are around, stop bothering me with this kid. I need some sleep. <laughs> Which again is fine. It, 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 to your point, is like everyone's kind of, they're, they're all melodramatic. These are all melodramatic versions of characters, but they are also all human. Everyone has a very clear flaw. And again, this plays well to the, my earlier point about the ensemble is, is they're all like, I get all of them. Like I immediately know Nat, Stone Tree, Skanky, Nick, uh, and Dr. Hunter within one episode, within 42 minutes. I know all those characters are, what they do, how they relate to each other and what their eventual arc is. What's interesting to your point, I had forgotten, you're right. Skanky does find out because he's pitched as the guy who will never find out. Yeah. I don't think he finds out in season one at all. I think it's like I it was late season one. Maybe, maybe I don't know. No, I think um, you, I don't want to give a spoiler for next episode, but I'm not. I don't think someone else comes back until season two, so it ha probably has to be season two. Right, right, okay. Um, uh, oh, and I forgot uh, uh, Lacroix and uh, Jeanette. Although Jeanette, it's extremely minimal screen time here. Um, but that's a huge amount of people to introduce, and they're all to use your term watchable. It, it's they're not. They're not deep, they're not compelling, but they're watchable. He's like, oh yeah, I want to see more about these people. And to to touch, I guess, back on the point about Nat and Nick, one of the reasons that I think it works so well with that sort of dynamic is that Nick by himself doesn't work if someone doesn't already know his secret. It's the same mm -hmm. sort of flaw they had when they were going to try to make an angel show. That's why they had to add Doyle so there's someone to bounce off of because a broody vampire that doesn't talk much doesn't give you anything to engage with to not get on their side. Right. And that puts us on Nick's side. Um, and you're right. Nat is the external conscience of Nick is a way that we as the audience can, can root for Nick trying to recover from this um, because the show is going to put Nick through hell and does a really good job of that. Um, and also uh, Lacroix plays the opposite role, right? is that he's the person who, who externalizes Nick's vampiric lusts. What's fascinating to me is that, so just on episode one, uh, Lacroix is just the person doing the voiceover. Okay, whatever. You know, he has a cool voice, what happened to the voiceover? Uh, a peek into episode two, he also does the recap, but it's not just a recap of this episode. It's diegetically, that's what he's saying on the radio. On the radio, he's telling everyone <laughs> what just happens. So we have this interesting moment of, it's called Forever Night with a K. Nick Knight is his new name. It's very clear Nick is the protagonist, but Lacroix is the narrator. And that's an interesting dynamic that I think I couldn't articulate when I was watching it, but over time, it's clear that Lacroix 
is indivisible from Nick, right? He, he, he is an inherent part of Nick as a character. And so it's really interesting that Nat is the one we kind of glom through and cheer for. And they also have a great, where there, there's some there's some chemistry here, but it's not necessarily sexual. They're also a strong friend chemistry here, which I really, really love. Um, but it's the Qua who always kind of gets the last word and the show reinforced that through its structure, which is fascinating. Well, do we want to give a spoiler for the complete show itself? Because if we look at the final episode of the show, that all makes perfect sense. Go ahead and spoil it. I, I think people should watch it anyway, but go ahead and spoil it. So in the final episode of the show, it's it's left as a cliffhanger, depending on how you want to do it. But Nick, Natalie finally convinces Nick to try to bring her across to be a vampire. and They can flee together because of a bunch of shit that happened and Nick has to leave. Mm-hmm. And Nick puts aside his concern and he tries to bring Natalie across and kills Nat. LaCroix right. shows up and by this point, LaCroix and Nick have moved heavily into more friends than enemies. Yeah. There's a transition that happens over the course of the show. And Nick asks LaCroix to kill him. Mm. And, it, and the show ends with LaCroix raising like a big massive stake up over him. And it's about to come down and stab Nick and kill Nick. And that's how the show ends. So it is implied that LaCroix kills Nick. And if mm-hmm. that is how the show ends, this is LaCroix telling Nick's story. So that is always why LaCroix would have the last word. It is why LaCroix would be the narrator of Nick's story. Mm-hmm. And it's... And even the, even the, the flashback, um, we don't see as much in this first episode. We see it a little bit more later. But the flashbacks are not as gratuitous. Um, they're introduced in the story at appropriate parts, which again implies that someone is telling the Nick Knight story and just for some reason started halfway in his career as a police officer and went from there and went back to kind of, Oh, and by the way, this happens to kind of give context for certain moments. It, it, it implies a structure that very likely was not there from the writer perspective, but it, it, it makes the whole thing feel like melodramatic fiction. So that's and, why I kept saying soap opera because it has this soap opera thing of you can't watch soap opera for episode one. You have to kind of just dive in to the current episode and just kind of flow along with it. And it feels the same way. It's like you're coming in halfway through a show that's already started running, even though this is actually the start of the show. And it also reinforces LaCroix, at least in my opinion, reinforces LaCroix idea of he's telling Nick's story because LaCroix shows back up into Nick's life at about this point after being gone for a while. Yep. So mm-hmm. That is why right. this would be the starting point of any story he's going to tell you about this period in Nick's life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 exceedingly clever in very surprising ways. Um, is there anything else we should touch on in this episode? Because we, we are already long for the first episode. Yeah, yeah. No, let's, let's go on to episode two. Uh, so in case um, folks are curious, I think this is what happens when we both really enjoy. And I don't want to say like love a show, even even with the level of cheese that it has. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it didn't help that we had a 20-minute decoration about literally any very show but this one. But anyway, <laughs> um, episode two, Dark Knight, the second chapter. Not part two, because that's not grand enough. Um, over the radio, the Qua recaps the previous episode while also encouraging Nick to meet with him. Dr. Hunter follows Nick to a meatpacking plant where he meets the Qua again after many years. The Qua admits to killing the guard and stealing the second cup to keep it from Nick, but he had nothing to do with the murder of the homeless people. Dr. Hunter's surprised gasp gives away her presence. LaCroix grabs her, holds out the cup, and makes Nick choose between the girl or the cup. LaCroix smashes the cup, and Nick saves Dr. Hunter. 
As she flees, Nick stakes him on the spike of a metal meat-hanging frame and believes him to be dead. The sun rises, and Nick gets in the trunk of his car. Nick's car is found and sent to the police impound. Skanky drives it to the blood bank, and Nick sneaks in, hacks their computer, and learns all the homeless victims were blood donors. Skanky drives off to get a warrant for the blood bank, and the brakes fail after the lines are cut. Nick kind of forgives Skanky for the accident, and they go back to the blood bank to discover an employee who has both access to donor records and who also carries a bunch of jangling keys. Don Fenner, whose mother had died recently from hepatitis, she contracted during a blood transfusion of type O negative blood donated by a homeless person. Meanwhile, Dr. Hunter breaks into Nick's loft. She finds the cup Nick excavated himself, as well as one of Nick's young homeless friends who's bloody and beaten. Dr. Hunter calls the paramedics when Nick calls home and answers the phone. As she explains, the buzzer rings and she opens the door for Fenner. He knocks out Dr. Hunter and a fire starts while she tries to kill the girl. Well, he tries to kill the girl. Nick flies over, saves the girl, and leaps into the fire to reach the injured Dr. Hunter. Lacroix suddenly appears and drains Fenner's blood. Nick is weak from not feeding and can't fight Lacroix. Dr. Hunter offers herself as food, providing... Nick then brings her across. Nick says no and bites the quad anyway. He fails from being so weak, but the quad just can't bring himself to kill Nick. He grabs Dr. Hunter and drains her blood. Nick comes in to shove a burning wooden stake into the quad. Later, Nat tells Nick how she arrived how she arrived at the loft, saw he was wounded and starving, and told Skanky he needed a blood transfusion. As all three leave the museum, we see a vampiric Dr. Hunter gazing at them from the skylight. Through all of this, in 1228, Nick realizes he made a mistake and asks to go back to being human. Laquan and Jeanette bring him a girl to feed on and lecture him on the glories of being a vampire until, as he listens to them, his hunger gets the better of him and he feeds and enjoys it. Again, a bunch of nonsense. Like, the <laughs> is almost like the least interesting thing about this two-part episode, right? It just happens to be the case Nick is solving right now. And well, that's why I think the show worked so well, is that it's yes. a riff on the monster of the week plot for all the other shows the monster mm-hmm. of the week was just sort of a thing that has to happen and for this the cop drama piece is just a thing that has to happen absolutely um it, I, I i started off by saying this is kind of a different thread but you're absolutely right to our show's mandate they're all all the stories kind of the same this is the quote-unquote a plot to drag you into what the show is really about which is watching nick knight's life getting increasingly terrible um, and, uh, the reveal of the killer happens kind of halfway through this episode. We as the audience know who it is ha- about halfway through. Um, and then Nick catches up to that. So it's not a show about Nick suddenly solving the crime because we don't get a ton of, uh, and, and to be blunt, Nick doesn't really figure it out. He puts pieces together because he was in the trunk of the car. Um, <laughs> so he was in the right place at the right time. Uh, happens to break into a computer to find the information, which is one thing he actually does that's genuinely good, and then more or less stumbles into the answer. Uh, so this isn't a show about watching super competent police people figure out crimes. It's a bunch of nonsense to get us to the next cool vampire bit, and it does that really, really well. Now that you're you're pointing out the not super competent cop thing, as an American, I am curious if that is because it is a Canadian-based show. Because in America, they would have primarily they'd have to show the cops as being super competent that we're watching and able to solve the crimes. So actually, that's an interesting point. Um, I I briefly almost vetoed this because when I remembered that Nick was a police officer, I was like, I don't want this show in case if it's going to be that kind of American propaganda. 
I actually watched an episode, a bit of it early on. I was like, oh, no, it's not because there's no way that you can look at this and go, this glorifies the police. That's just not happening here. Um, but you're right. This is a Canadian show. Um, slight spoiler for episode six. The show is really clear on where it's set initially. Um, it's not, I didn't realize it was explicit in Canada until they showed some money in episode six. It's like, oh, that's Canadian money. Um, and then I think later on, there's actually a reference to Canada in there. So the show is diegetically, I believe, in Toronto, um, which is where it's filmed. So that worked out well. Uh, but you're right. I mean, it's a very different tone of show. The cops are not incompetent, per se. Uh, it's just they're just not they're just not great. They're, they're, they're extremely fallible humans. And uh, justice is not really the goal and that's and that's what's you're right it's not an american show an american show would be kind of law and order csi yeah that that's that's how we do it um and we can't show the police as possibly having failings and like, no this is very much this is it, it feels more like the original flash show than anything else where the police are just the frame to get to the stuff we're actually here to watch this show for now that we're talking about an american version i'd almost think an american version that nick would just be using like his dom, uh dominate mask of the vampire drop for you to make people confess to various crimes that is what the american mm -hmm. show version would be right whereas really he uses it on a reporter who asks awkward questions and on his boss um that's about it yeah and so it's it's that was the more we talked about the more that's just sort of like can, popping in my brain i was really curious hmm. um i also like i like the fact that lacroix dies twice in this episode <laughs> Um, which sets up a long-running shtick of Nick and LaCroix fighting and LaCroix getting killed. Except not really. Um, and it's just never... I mean, like, this one's kind of like a throwaway line of, you can't come with a metal stake. And then Nick's like, okay, cool, I'll use a flaming stake. And then in episode three, he comes back, and there's another reason. It just doesn't matter. LaCroix is going to keep coming back. And I love it. It's like, the show's just like, meh. <laughs> I love... Keeping him around. I love the talk about Nick's car and the size of the trunk that is yes. dropped early on. Like early yes. on is dropped. It's like, that won't be important at all in this shoe, will it? Well, oh. and that, the, 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 right, that's another great point is because Nick tells Skanky that. Like, why'd you buy this car? Because it has the most trunk space. It's very clearly set up as we want the audience to know this because we'll play off it later. But it's also Nick fucking with Skanky. I was like, he's just going to keep putting his little nuggets out for Skanky to figure out, and Skanky just does it for a long time. Um, but, like, the other about the car is when Skanky wrecks the car. I love that scene because um, Nick's stuck in the trunk. Skanky wrecks the car. So he's Nick is now actually literally, like, he can't be in the trunk. The repair person that Skanky takes the car to, because Skanky's whole time is like, oh, my God, Nick's going to kill me. So Nick can hear all of this. The guy's using a crowbar to show how the trunk is just fused shut and Skanky walks off like, Oh my God, I can't do this. Then Nick just appears <laughs> and then starts giving Skanky such shit. And Skanky's like, trying to apologize, trying to apologize. And then through that, Nick's like working on the case, right? It's like, I heard keys. Like, yeah, yeah, the guy had keys and blah, blah, blah. Um, and then it's, it's so great. It's because Skanky's like, you know, um, uh, so, so, so you're not mad about the car. And Nick's like, I could kill you about the car. And then, <laughs> just, and then, but, I apologize for making fun of you about your being a detective earlier. Um, so it's a great relationship because like Nick has that moment. You can see that moment of fury of like, I, I will murder you about this car, but 
and then pulls it back. He helped solve the case. Yeah, he did help and, solve the case accidentally, but yes, he did help solve the case. And I think this is a scene, though, that almost sort of cements their friendship going forward. Yes. Like Nick getting to hear Skanky's concern actually about his car and that Skanky is not the person that he necessarily projects himself to be. Right. And that's what, um, I mean, uh, to, to go back to kind of the qual for a moment, I think it's one of the reasons why this show works so well is because um, why you want to watch the show is you want to watch the vampires talk to each other, right? And the show is set up for ultimately the the the, the thing you want to see is Laquan and Nick face off because that's the way the show positions itself. And the sh- this episode, perhaps a little bit aside, but generally it withholds that. Uh, the vampires don't show up very often. So Nick is mostly talking to the human cast. And so they continue to... Uh, bring out the moral components of Nick's personality, but then also inevitably it gets pushed too far. He almost murders someone in this episode. He, in this episode, is just really him being confronted with blood and backing away, confronted with blood again and backing away. And like three or four times this happens, and Nick keeps going on, and then the show capitalizes it, and specifically Lacroix capitalizes on it. So there's this fantastic tension of every time Nick is invested in the human class, we like Nick, but Nick is then at the back foot in regards to the vampire shit. And then when it goes to the vampire shit, which is stuff that we want to see, he's at a disadvantage, but ultimately pulls through because his human cast comes to help him out. So it's a great back and forth dynamic that happens that we see in these two episodes of we want to see him defeat Lacroix, but to do that, he has to be with the human cast, and the human cast will make it harder for him to connect to the vampire nature and therefore deal with Lacroix. It's wonderfully paced. Yeah, that was beautifully stated. Um, but uh, what do you think about how they're playing? This touches on Natalie's Nat's plan to try to cure Nick and through scientific means and saying that it's a blood that he's addicted to. If he stops drinking the blood and eat food, it could turn him back to human. How do you feel about like that dynamic? I'm not sure I feel about them using blood as an addiction sort of allegory. Like even as I watched it now, that sort of that rubs me the wrong way now, and I think that it did way back when, but I'm not as sure about that. So, um, I have always felt that vampirism is a metaphor for addiction. Um, I've had to do with addiction, not personally, but my family has been ravaged by addiction uh, throughout my life, uh, and one of the reasons why I was attracted to vampires and specifically to Forever Night was because it linked to those things in my head in a very concrete way. Um, so. I think what the show does, interestingly, at least in these early stages, is Nat is approaching this scientifically, and her best analog for what's happening is that this is uh, an addiction in a very literal sense. You need this substance, and by continuing to imbibe this substance, it causes you to have these negative effects. When you drink blood, you become irritable, angry, and violent. In my scientific brain, that is addiction. And the best way to solve addiction is this 12-step process, effectively, um, and or placebos. Those don't work. And Nick tries to explain that they don't work, but also he's been trying for 800 years and doesn't have a better option, so he's kind of humoring her. And that dynamic, I think, plays well. The show is the show doesn't make it seem like Nat's plan is ever going to work. So I'm not bothered by it because it's really Nat saying, oh, this is an addiction. Um, Nick kind of co-opting the language is a bit more interesting. So I think he's trying to pace in his own head, but Laquan Jeanette consistently through a show, like, that's not an addiction. That's just who you are, right? You can't 
not be this, which again, as an addiction metaphor, actually I do like, it's like you can never stop being an addict. Even if you kick, stop drinking blood, you're still an addict. If you stop drinking blood, you're still a vampire. Um, so I, I find that to be particularly strong, but this is also the early nineties. They were just, I think they are just kind of realizing there's a connection here. So yeah. they're playing with it in a very ham-fisted way. It's, it's not elegant by stretch of the imagination. It's pretty clearly, this is what this is. Um, but for a first stab at, a long form looking at vampirism as addiction. It's not bad. Okay. Cause I really wish that the show had established a solid mythology. Cause I know in a later episode that we didn't watch, there's one where Nick loses his memory and has amnesia. And while he doesn't remember, he's a vampire. He can walk around in the daytime unbothered. Oh, but God. when he realizes he's a vampire, <laughs> so, that's amazing. There, the the inconsistency there, since we're now discussing it, and I have on my logical journalist cap now as we're watching it, right. that is contrasting against part of the allegory that they're having here for it. So, I'm, so I I will argue that um, this is a show that cares more about character continuity than mythological continuity. Um, because I, I I believe the show does have a pretty strong plan, at least. Within a season, not season six, as you said, it's been canceled a couple times, but I think within a season, they wanted to tell very specific arcs, and it's pretty clear they care a lot about the characters, and it's also pretty clear that they make up the vampire shit on the spot to whatever the plot needs. Yeah. So, if you look at it from that perspective, it is a very well-constructed show, it's just the part it doesn't care about is the vampire mythology, which is something that would not fly in 2023. That, that just would not happen. You have to establish the rules of the universe in genre TV now. Okay. There's oh, a certain right. charm to just kind of shit happens. And fuck it. Yeah. yeah, fuck it. We have not really focused a lot on Annalise. Is that her name? That is how, how little she, she matters compared to the, the chemistry between uh, Nick and LaCroix. Everyone else yes. pales in comparison to that. Um, so yeah, Dr. Hunter is basically, it, it, it's funny because like on paper, it seems like she's the person who finds out Nick is a vampire and therefore is the audience look into uncovering the mystery, except for there's no mystery. We know exactly what's happening. It's not at all mysterious. So it kind of comes across like she's just kind of spinning, her wheels are spinning, right? It's the, she's catching up to what we already know. Um, and I feel like that's kind of reinforced in this two episode break because she finds the picture of him at the dig in episode one and then rediscovers it again in episode two. Like she forgot it the first time, but that's not what happened. It's the, we have to tell the audience to me and miss part one. Oh, by the way. Yeah. Nick was out there's a dig site, but it's, it's, it's framed like she's going back to check her notes, but it's, it's shot. Like this is a huge reveal, which is weird. Um, she also kind of wants to become a vampire out of nowhere. It's just like she finds out vampires exist. And then from, hey, LaCroix tried to kill me. Vampires exist. Within, tw within 10 minutes, she's like, okay, now I want to be one of you. Because as a historian, I would be able to see history unfold. That's a dumb reason. Why? She wants her endless forever night. <laughs> I'm gonna keep coming back to that because I think I think she I think she wants some forever night, but that's not what she's asking for. <laughs> All 
I don't think we're going to get to that in this podcast. We could. That was like one of the a big discussion at one of the vampire tables I was at when I was playing about blood flow and circulation. But yep, yep, yep. That, that's, I, that's, I, that's, I, I, I sadly have a canonical answer because I was required to come perform for work at one point. I'm not going to ask you about that yet. Good. We're moving on. Um, but no, honestly, Doctor Hunter is kind of just. It, it, that leads to another ongoing trope of Forever Night, which is to be really, 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 really reductionist. If Supernatural was the monster of the week, Forever Night was the girl of the week. Nick had a lot of girlfriends throughout this, <laughs> this show. Um, so that's setting up a pretty unfortunate downside. And honestly, I'd be more mad about it if Nat didn't exist, right? Yeah. Um, because we have a very clever, strong woman who can stand up to Nick very, very well. So it's not like all women are put in this thing, but certainly there's a lot of people that Nick kind of just gets involved with and or murders. Now that you've said that, something just really hit me like a a ton of bricks. So it's it's Nick Bond because he has the yeah. same sort of relationship with Nat that uh, James Bond has to Money Penny. In a way, yeah. Um, the difference is, is that uh, un- unlike uh, James Bond's, uh, Nick actually has uh, scruples and won't just stick his bangs into wherever it comes across all right this is something that you've you've talked about in the past i don't remember when but how do you like the fact that nick can use a computer as an 800 girl vampire (laughs) i don't know why people are so hung up on that like vampires can't understand technology it's like he's been around for 800 years he's watched how computers work um i'm more amused that the the blood bank well i'll say blood bank security is so lax but also it's a probably a government funded operation so i'm surprised they have security at all frankly so i guess I'm in the 90s no less no yeah they probably the, the security was the door was locked that was probably the entire security on the computer Which, there- to be fair with with Nick getting into the office we saw another case of jessica jones style i'm going to jiggle the handle and that accounts for my super strength breaking open a door but it's it's true vampire <laughs> super strength jessica jones super strength Yes, it's, I, I just love that. Uh, I saw that and I was like, oh my God, that's there's this whole minor thread of super strength and doorknobs that I could probably unpack if I wanted to, but I don't. Now that you mentioned superheroes and vampires, do we want to get into a whole digression about how Dracula is obsessed with Storm from the X-Men? Because Dracula has fantastic taste. Or how uh, there's, there's one version of Storm that becomes a vampire and then trains a young uh, Ileana Rasputin to become the the dark child in a parallel dimension, or the fact that um, Dracula uh, actually had his castle secondly moved to the moon because dark side of the moon that way the sun doesn't rise there. <laughs> I love comics. All right, um, ah. so we're gonna, we're going to talk about the the final confrontation, the the absolute final death of Lacroix, his final night, if you would. It's totally absolute. So I'm not sure I, I, I I love the fact that. Um, we have this moment of Nick going, I can't kill this person. Like Wacko's, okay, cool. Kills them. And Nick's like, but I can't kill this person. Like Wacko's, okay, I'll kill that person too. And he's just like, God damn it, like why would you stop? <laughs> <laughs> and it's so, oh my God, th- these actors are so fantastic because like, again, we have Nick doing the melodramatic, no, I can't speak can't. And Lacroix is just loving every second of it. I mean, again, like there is no scenery standing during the scene. It's so over the top. And it's wonderful. I, I I can't get enough of it. If you haven't seen it, you need to Google the actor who plays Lacroix also did a serial commercial. Really? 
you just you need to like look up his name and then Google him and cereal and watch that commercial. That's all I'm gonna say about it. Oh jeez. Jeanette, what what are we gonna say about Jeanette? Because we're not gonna see Jeanette again, and we should mention at least her and the Raven. Um, so Jeanette is uh, the almost stereotypical uh, attractive female vampire who runs a nightclub, um, which was digression, but hilariously sent up in the last season of What We Do in the Shadows, um, because it is such a trope that they actually very successfully parodied that and just kept going and going and going with it. And it was it was wonderful. Um, because the logistics of vampire owning a nightclub are actually deeply concerning <laughs> if you actually think about them. That's why um, you have ghouls but, that run the day-to-day operations. Right, right. Uh, but, um, oh man, Jeanette. We, we've talked before about crushes on this show, and she was definitely one of, my, one of mine too. Uh, because it's such a perfect thing of... We might have joked before about Nick, Nick's constantly running into all these different women. Um, but Jeanette so clearly wants Nick to be into her, and he so clearly isn't. It's such a great dynamic. It, it, it's like it's not it, it's chemistry, but it's inverted from a relationship standpoint. He does not like Jeanette. Jeanette is really annoyed by that fact, and it sets up a really interesting dynamic that just doesn't show up on screen very often for a variety of reasons. Probably because they can't afford to keep shooting at the Raven set wherever that is. And. It does reinforce something, though, about a sire and their child, or though, when they make them, how even though they, some in some terms, hate and despise each other, they cannot seem to separate or move away from that dynamic they always have. They always keep coming back. And if the shit gets really bad, they still go and turn to them and can get some form of help. Right. But one thing I love about the, the kind of triangle here, it's not really a triangle. It's kind of just two people and Nick. Um, but Jeanette's relationship is very much on the lines of like, listen, you're trying to do your own thing. I, I kind of respect that. I wish you were more into me, but whatever. I'll, I'm here if you need me. And the quasi, no, I got to go fuck with Nick today. And Jeanette's like, come on, seriously. The quasi, no, no, I'm going to go on the radio right now. I'm going to fuck with Nick. And Jeanette's like, could you please calm down? Like, no, 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 this is happening. We're doing this. <laughs> because it's a love story. The quasi is way more into Nick than Jeanette is. <laughs> Oh my god! Because like, seriously, it's like I I murdered you twice. Please go away. No, no, this is happening. You're gonna like me. <laughs> All right. Is there anything else you want to talk about this episode? Or we'll be here um, no, like I another mean, honestly, hour. Um, um, I don't know. Yeah, just really quick on the Jeanette thing is like, you know, she is very much the archetypal, uh, um, uh, sexy brunette vampire. Um, and she does it well. I I, I like the fact that um. Some of it is it's shot in the nineties, but like they don't go too far with that. She's always done. She's very classily dressed. Um, They don't go too like showing a lot of skin or making her too heavily sexual. She's more sensual. Um, And and they do that a lot by allowing her to play it cool and reserved, which actually works better. I think Um, it's just a shame. We don't see as much of her as perhaps I would like to. Anyway, episode six, dying to know you. Nick and Skanky investigate the disappearance of the wife and daughter of a rich philanthropist, and Stone Tree assigns a psychic, Denise, to the case because that is what you do when you are a competent police department. She seems to get accurate information from the crime scene and the corpse, but she's also plagued by visions of Nick's long and violent wife. Combining the images, however, we realize that both Nick and the person who abducted the women are vampires. Meanwhile, we learn that Skanky is both skeptical of psychics and a really bad detective. 
these facts might be related. Nick talks to Denise and she reveals that she's overloaded with images. It can cause synaptic overload and interfere with her abilities. She and Skanky firmly believe that Hedges, the philanthropist, is a good person, but Denise gets impressions from Hedges' home that contradict this image, intermixed with images from Nick's past life. Nick is skeptical of the kidnapping, believing the murder of the wife isn't consistent with the MO of the crime. Denise tries to quit the case, and Hedges appears with all the money for the kidnappers, which is not at all suspicious. Following Natalie's advice, since Denise already knows, Nick tells her the truth about being a vampire, and Denise asks Nick to take her flying sometime. With her psychic ability no longer clouded, she helps detectives discover that Hedge was skimming off the top and getting rich off his own charity. The wife and daughter learned that Mr. Hedges was a crook, so he had them kidnapped and planned to kill both of them to save his reputation. He's confronted in the climactic finale, but Hedges pulls a gun and shoots Denise. As she bleeds out, Nick carries her in his arm to experience the joy of flying before she dies. Then Nick broods about it for four hours. In the flashback, Nick is friends with a Puritan named Brother Matthew, who saw Nick fly as a vampire and thinks he's going crazy. Nick tries to keep his nature a secret, but it causes Matthew to doubt himself so much that he hangs himself. Haunted by his mistake, Nick decide, decides not to let the same thing happen to Denise. And uh, uh, since, since we had this weird running thread of, of talking about uh, flashbacks and what does and doesn't work about flashback, um, I, feel, I, I was keeping our minds our Watchmen conversation about flashbacks when you were asked about that then. I think this works here because the flashback directly ties to the plot of the episode mm -hmm. and to the point where it actually cuts back and forth between the flashback and the episode as Denise is finding out images of Nick's. I mean, yes, there's also some imagery from obviously the first two episodes we watched, but also this flashback also shows up. So there's a direct tie between the plot of the modern episode and the flashback. So the flashback has absolute value and the episode would be weaker without the flashbacks. 100% agree. And I think that's why it works. And I have no complaints mm -hmm. about the flashback. It's not like we're watching Arrow. Right, right. Um, and there is also I, a gaping plot hole, though. Well, I, I want to touch on so yeah. far the universe up to this episode has established that there's only vampires. And even the use of vampires is used in smatterings throughout the show, which is why it works so well. But then they introduce psychics here. And it feels as if psychics are also smattered throughout the universe. So it's very much a steep in supernatural show. We're not going to have science fiction is I think what a psychic helps us establish and mm -hmm. that we're not going to have a bunch of other weirdness. So it keeps pulling back the mundane nature of the universe with like just a small layer of supernatural on it, which then goes back into trying to say that they're trying to keep their old audience to still bring in a new audience with those little bits. And it's, it's well done. And honestly, it, it's uh, to compare it to Supernatural, I think by inverting the formula that helps because like Supernatural, by its design, you literally have to bring in a new monster more or less every week, um, which means that you have a constant uh, uh, depth of weirdness that has to happen. With Forever Night, the monster is the main character, so they can really focus on that. So the introduction of a psychic adds something to it, but you're right. This is the first real non, not only non-vampiric, but also not the three vampires we know episode um, because we don't see many other vampires outside of our three vampire cast for quite a while. Um, but that does lead to the plot hole here is that, um, and it's more of, it, it's, it's framed weirdly. Um, she's watching the flashback. Of, so the, the, the setup for the crime is that the limo driver was abducted the limo driver for the wife and the child 
was replaced by somebody else who ends up kidnapping the two women. Um, we don't see, we don't get a clear image of his face when he jabs a needle in the chauffeur's neck, which is just disturbing. Um, and so when she's at the crime, she's reliving that part, and then we see a clear image of his face. And we see the scleras, the, the eyes that Nick has as a vampire. And then the show cuts to Nick's eyes. And then we start seeing Nick's flashbacks. And this is the first time we see kind of that Nick's history. The impressions she's getting off of Nick are interfering with her abilities as a psychic. The problem is, is that the show positions like, oh, the guy who abducted them as a vampire. It's not until the end of the episode you realize that was never the case. And what they probably <laughs> meant was that him abducting her was the mental connection between into Nick's memories of violence. And they tried to use it through by matching the eyes together, but the way it was framed, it looked like the abductor was actually a vampire. So it comes across as a plot hole. And so it's a weird thing. Like, this is not a kitchen logic of, I realized the plot hole after it's like, I realized the plot hole immediately. And it took me a while to realize, oh, they actually probably didn't mean that as a plot hole. They probably meant to be a visual connection that just didn't quite land right. But I think the fact that happens in the daytime would infer that it wasn't a vampire. Maybe he had amnesia. Nah. <laughs> but it does go back into the other issue that we talked about. How does one get rid of a body? He comes in, he jabs him in the neck, and he pushes <laughs> him down in the passenger seat. <laughs> now, don't the car is also parked that the passenger side is on the street where pedestrians walk by. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. So people saw this. People watched this like, happen. I give you. The, I'll give you the needle jab because I'm being overly generous. But <laughs> the guy's body is like in the passenger seat like this. It's, he was not a small man. He was a large man. Right. Um. But I mean, but this goes back to <laughs> the sheer incompetence of the policeness. Like, not only did they think, huh. Maybe we should see if there were some witnesses around when that car was parked, and maybe they will have noticed the corpse on the seat next to him. But also that this episode starts with Nick shows up on the scene with Skanky. The the, the psych Denise is there. And they're like, rightfully, why are you at this crime scene? You're in the crime scene. And the captain goes, Oh no, no, that's the psychic I hired for this episode. It's like, we just started investigating and you've already jumped to psychic. And so the show is like, okay, well, maybe the rich guy asked for it. No, the rich guy is like, also, why is the psychic here? So the, per the only person who thought this, uh, this case needs a psychic was the captain. Because she called and said, hey, I think someone's going to be kidnapped. And the captain said, cool, can you come down to the station? We'll give you a badge and you can jump right in. <laughs> if, as, as a huge <laughs> fan of the TV show Psych, if <laughs> she has an established relationship with the captain, she would just show up on, on wherever crime scenes are. And to boot, if she's psychic, she would know to be there. Okay, so ignoring that really bad joke for a moment, <laughs> I could almost buy if Nick and Skank were like, oh my God, this brought again, right? That would actually sell it for me. It's the, okay, she's been around for a while. But no, they're like, they, they have no idea who, this, who she is. So they've never seen her before. That just shows you how good of detectives they were. The captain has never needed to call a psychic in on their cases before. But this time, except for the, it's except for this different. kidnapping. Because she called him. Because she knew. Right. Oh, uh, FYI, if people haven't seen Psyche, you should go watch Psyche because it's a great show. Oh, Psyche is great. Um, uh, and also, again, this is another case where the mystery just doesn't matter. Because, like, anybody who's watched TV it immediately goes, okay, no, it was the husband, right? And then it's like, 
Because they're like, no, he's rich, but he's a good guy because he runs a philanthropy. Like within five minutes, you're going, it's the husband. And sure enough, it's the husband. It's not a shock. <laughs> Except for it's a skanky, apparently. Because skanky is a working man and he's just trying to get by. Uh, no, I got nothing for him this time. Okay. okay. And to be fair, I'm going to actually hit Nick with this too. Nick doesn't even think about this being a concern. Until the, until the wife gets murdered, he goes, huh, that's not consistent with blackmail. <laughs> All right. I'm going to point out, Nick is an 800-year-old vampire. <laughs> he doesn't know anything about the importance of actual money and currency. He, 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 what did he have to deal with that? In the crusade? He had some gold? <laughs> he had some gold pieces that he had to pay stuff with? Doesn't understand it. I, I will, I'll give Nick a pass. Skanky, right. I will not because right. Skanky is all about money. Right. Um, and, and there's a there's a weird moment where like Skanky is the only person. I mean, as much as I've given Skanky stick, he's the only person that actually goes, you know, maybe the psychic may not be legit. And like everyone clowns him, but it's like, no, no, just <laughs> clearly has actual powers. And he's like, have we, have we maybe you know checked her credentials or something? And they're like, no, no, she's a psychic. And he's proven wrong. But he brings up a valid point. <laughs> the whole time he's like, I'm actually with Skanky on this. Who is this woman and why is she here? Nope. Uh, it, it was funny, though, to see her give Skanky concern about his marriage, right? Yeah. That's that's some, some solid 90s humor for you. Uh, yeah. I mean, both uh, David Awkward humor about relationships, but also the phone that he pulls out to call his wife. It's just... It's just <laughs> Short of putting a calendar in the background, you couldn't make it more than 92 if you tried. Yeah, I, I don't have really a lot else to say about this episode. Yeah, because uh, I, like, I did like the Puritan piece, though. I did like the flashback. I like the time period. This was actually one of the ways where, like, um, so uh, the, the Puritan stuff was great. Um, I, it actually is a, a really strong for contender, which of what I wish Arrow would have done, right? This was like, oh man, if Arrow had done more stuff like this, I would be so much more behind the flashbacks. Um, because this was a Fantastic example. And again, two costumes, one room, but it really sells it. <laughs> because the other thing is also the flashbacks are short. They're very, very short. And so they don't stick around long enough to become irritating. It's just you go in, you, you sketch a few lines, they both act the hell out of it, you move on to the rest of the, the episode. And then it comes in, sees the feet dangling. We don't need to be told what happened. We figure it out and we just move on. Um, Nick does kind of explain it later, but still, it's it's a pretty good job of just using his vampire experience as context for his police experience, which is ultimately what the show is supposed to be doing. And it does a really good job of it. Um, and it gives you a moment actual... of... Sorry, yeah. go ahead. No. I was going to move on to Denise. But... Um, well, it also gives you a moment of thinking that is this another point in time where Nick was trying to embrace his humanity? Because yes. at any point in time, he could have killed Brother Matthew and gone about his day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and uh, again, little things like the fact that, that he was joking about like the horse and whatnot, they were clearly friends. They knew each other. Um, so it, it, it does a, it's one of the few, pla few places where the show is not being explicit about what's going on. It's being a little subtle and it's to its benefit because you don't need to be explicit on both threads. Like, we can, we can let this thread let the audience figure out if they need to or not and let that hang. And I think it helps draw you in. Uh, but the other thing is interesting to me is that the Denise arc in this, which is identical to the art of the archaeologist is both done in half the time here and is better <laughs> because she 
we see her get horrified and then come around to the idea of vampires through the episode. Her wanting to be turned makes a little more sense here. And they have a little hook. It's cute, but it's kind of, you know, tacked on of the, you know, I would love to fly. And then afterwards, you know, he takes her flying. It, it's a short beat. You've only got 45 minutes to do this in, to do an entire relationship. So for what it's doing, it does a really good job of that. It's like, I, it, it was a bit long in terms of her constantly being distracted by Nick's thoughts. But at least the other kind of part of this episode is that there was a good, really strong 35 minute episode in this. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not at the end yet. I'm going to come back to that. But <laughs> the reason I think that it works so well with her having such a better understanding and turnaround is that through her vision, she experienced chunks of that 800 years, right. which mm -hmm. the Dr. Hunter didn't get to experience. She just had to yeah. see it and then try to piece everything together. This lets mm -hmm. her power be an important piece of it, adds to the relationship and the complexity of the character. And to realize that the horror of becoming a vampire, but wanting to enjoy some of the potential power of it. Hence, like the asking to be flying instead of turn me into a creature of the night, Nicholas, let me walk the dark streets with you. To witness history unfold. No. Um, to Dr. Hunter. She never comes back throughout the entire course of this series. And we see that she is also a vampire now. I was wondering if she came back or not, actually. Mm -mm. Plot hook. Again, they're making up as they went along, and I get that. They probably just couldn't get the actor back or whatever. Um, but also, I mean, like, you know, again, like, there, there's... When she has the connection with Nick, you could argue it's a few too many times um, because, and they're clearly trying to use recycled footage to kind of pad the episode out. But I also don't think it's too many times because each time she has it, she has a different reaction when she comes back from it. First, she's overwhelmed. Then she's actually horrified. Then she's confused, but intrigued. And then finally Nick explains it. Um, but Leading up to that, there's there's a, a bit two bits that I like. There's there's two ongoing kind of threads with Nat. One is that um, Nat will always take any opportunity with Nick to try to test some new theory with her, and it's going to be disgusting. <laughs> and two, when it comes to people, Nat is always right. Um, Nick has spent 800 years, still doesn't figure out how to people, and Nat is just like, just talk to her. She already knows. Just tell her. And he goes, all right. He tells her, and it turns out okay. If you listen to Nat, generally speaking, you're going to be fine. I also like Unless she gives you something to eat, then don't do it. I also like the fact, though, that they didn't fall into the trope of having corners and people that work for the dead being horrible with people. In fact, it's the exact opposite. And like that was a very yeah. nice touch. Yeah, yeah. She, she's not morbid. She's not, uh, she doesn't have dark humor. She's just someone doing her job. And she's actually probably one of the, Skanky is the funniest character, uh, as a, the, obviously because this role is to be the comic relief. But Nat is the brightest. She is the most sincerely joyful character in the show. And um, Stone Tree is the sleepiest. Not mm -hmm. gonna let that go. It's yeah. So much to let that yeah. man have a nap. Yeah, just he needs to, he needs to he needs to crash out. But I, I think one of my final comments though is that Lacroix's jaw must really hurt. Because chewing that much scenery has got to be tiring <laughs> on the job. Maybe like dentists must get like so much money from him. Oh my god! It just look. It's amazing because Lacroix has one mode. 
and it's just it's just always on. It's great. Um, and then we have like I mean we we talked about it a few times like you know there, there's just Nick brooding for feels like ever because they need um, to feel the runtime, right? And it's at first I was like this is weird, and then I was like okay I I, I saw what it was it's it's the, you're filling the runtime out great, um, but then they come back and there's this really bizarre joke at the end of skanky eating tofu because you know it's the 90s so it's like ah health food and it's like yeah well here we are in 2023 and like meatless meat is delicious i don't know what you're talking about but that works with the character of skanky because we, we didn't mention it before but he is always talking about fucking food throughout the every right. single time he talks about food or he's eating something right but there's also an interesting i didn't notice at the time but you mentioned skanky eventually finds out about nick and i'm now playing it back in my head and I realized that every episode we've seen Skanky has tried to ask a question about Nick's life and Nick has always deflected it. And it happens kind of here. It, it's, it's buried in the dialogue, but Skanky's talking about his favorite food and he's like, you know, actually I don't know what kind of food you like. What kind of food do you like? And Nick just goes on to the next point. Um, and so it's an interesting point. Now that you say that I can actually reverse. Oh yeah. I can see Skanky actually trying to figure Nick out. It's kind of almost buried in the humor. He's still not good. It took him way too long to figure it out. But <laughs> it, it's interesting that he actually is, in his own way, trying to be a detective. And he's trying to be friends with this guy. Yeah. So it's it's well written and it's well acted. There are some some plot holes, but come on. Right. There's Again, so much good. To, I can't I can't even harp on those. It, 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 ultimate was down to this is what you're, what are you watching the show for? Right. And if you're, if you're watching the show for uh, a tightly knit continuity, yeah, you're not going to have fun with this show. If you're watching the show, because the idea of a vampire cop struggling to get his humanity while dealing with his asshole exes is fun. You will love this show. I'm, I'm feeling this 90s show run because I want to toss John Doe in there and have us watch John Doe too. Oh God, John Doe. I haven't seen that in a million years. Um, I want to know how well that holds up. Well, so then we may have to toss another Legends episode in there just for uh, Dominic Purcell to see him as John Doe and then see him as Heatwave. <laughs> oh God. Oh God. If we, if we really wanted to get like masochistic, we could throw in um, Blade 3 where he plays Dracula. Was he Dracula in Blade 3? He was Dracula in Blade 3. Oh my god. I'm just kind of watching because Blade 3 is also the one that had Triple H as a vampire too. So there's a lot of amazing characters going on there. And we, we could have gone and done the Blade TV series. That was a Blade TV series? Yes, there was. They read about 12 episodes. Oh my god. I want to say it was on uh, FX. Well, I feel like, now that you say that, I, I feel like that may have been the same people who did the Crow TV series, which was also pretty horrible. I don't think the Blade TV series was horrible. It wasn't good, but I don't think it was horrible. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, horrible in a so bad is good way. God, Blade was played by what? I think his, like, was his stage name Sticky Fingers or something <laughs> like that. Oh, I think he was a rapper. I can't remember. Damn it. Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you what. I mean, you'll get part of your wish um, because next week um, we are going to stay in the 90s. Uh, but we're going to watch the, the logical antecedents to forever night which is kindred the embraced um we don't often get to talk about shows that also have a strong rpg origin so this is 
a really fantastic opportunity to watch a show that I personally feel is is, is not fairly derided. Uh, or, I mean, I, I think it's derided and it's not fair. I think there's some genuine fun in this show. But you have to watch Forever Night to understand why I think Kindred the Embrace is fun. But Eddie, if, if we're watching Kindred the Embrace and it's RPG focused, would is that going to be the end of our Halloween specials? You know what? I think it might, which means we should probably bring a special guest on, shouldn't we? Hmm. Uh, I guess we're going to have to start calling some people. Maybe we know somebody that can come on. Well, you'll have you to come what? back next time to find out, though. Yeah, but I, I think we have some friends who might be super interested in talking about Vampire the Masquerade. Because if I'm not mistaken, you have written and done a lot of vampire work. And yeah. I, I myself may have pinned a few words of vampire. Certainly, I, 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 I evolve you a Chicago book seems to be coming to mind that you may have worked on. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, do we uh, want to tell them what episodes to potentially watch of Kindred? Yo, yes. Sorry. Um, uh, we're going to stretch our mandate here a little bit. Um, but uh, we're going to watch episode one, the original saga, which is a double length episode. So be aware of that going in. Um, watch episode three, Night Stalker. And then watch my favorite episode, episode six, The Rise and Fall of Eddie Fury, who is the best <laughs> slash worst bruja ever. <laughs> Uh, does that mean that next week we can get into a debate how true Bruja are better than normal Bruja? We, we could talk about Time Lord, sure, no problem, Chris. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what oh, true Bruja God. are. They're just vampire Time Lords. That's why I could love them so much. Um, Eddie, <laughs> if people are looking to buy your sweet, sweet merch and some vampire stuff on the side to get ready for this, where could they go to make that happen? Uh, honestly, the if you want to buy vampire stuff that I've worked on, uh, the best place would be to go to my website, which is pugsteady.com. That's P-U-G-S-T-A-D-Y. Um, I actually have a page there of everything I've worked on, and so you can get links to it. Um, so you can find all my vampire stuff there. Um, but otherwise, if you want to just chat with me, um, I'm on a couple of social media sites as Pugsteady. Uh, or but really the best place to find me is the Darker Hue Discord, where Chris and I hang out and occasionally post stuff. Like uh, recently I posted uh, a very good article that wasn't written by either of us, but explains very clearly why we're never going to talk about Firefly. <laughs> <laughs> it, and it had great points to it. Um, yeah. If you're check. looking to buy my work on Vampire, you can go to, I'm not even sure anymore where it's at. Is it, is it all RPG, on Path sure. Safe? Yeah. Uh, drive through. RPG. It's a Chicago by Night book. I think also a thousand years of night with uh, the incredible oh, yeah. Rose Bailey. Uh, if you're yeah. looking for my personal vampire stuff, you can go buy Haunted West because I made vampires in there. If you're just looking to chat with me, much like Eddie said, I'm in the Discord, uh, still dropping memes and and hot sick takes on my one shot Robotech game that I'm running this weekend. Oh yeah. Why isn't that set in the second part of Robotech, Chris? <laughs> there is no second part. <laughs> I don't know. The number counting for Robotech was weird. It went like first generation, third generation. <laughs> well, if you want to hear about our Robotech takes, you can go back and listen to those. But otherwise, we will see you here next week where we talk about Kindred the Embraced. My endless forever night. <laughs>